Thank you. Uh, the passage that we've just read uh, is uh, the, the first plague and the ninth plague. And we've read that uh, as, as bookmarks to uh, the first nine plagues. And today, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at the nine plagues um, in, in, in some, in total. Now, uh, you know, the story of the ten plagues is uh, one of, uh, it's probably children's uh, favorite story uh, in the Bible. It's a story filled with animals and insects. It has the, the classic uh, protagonist and antagonist. Uh, it's, it's a story that I, I could almost guarantee is found in uh, every single children's Bible. Uh, not only is it uh, a children's favorite, but it's also one of Hollywood's favorite Bible stories. Uh, the story of the Ten Plagues is, is quite an epic one. It's perfect for the big screen. Uh, in the most recent rendition of it, uh, Christian Bale played the role of Moses. Batman played Moses. <laughs> you know, but as exciting as it is uh, for children, and for moviegoers, uh, this story, uh, the story of the Ten Plagues, is uh, just as troubling for the modern reader. If it's not troubling, at least it poses some serious, serious questions. You know, as we think about uh, what Exodus is about and what God is doing here, as we've read, um, you know, we have to ask a few questions. First, we can ask, is God really doing all of this? Right. Is God really doing all of this? Uh, is it hyperbole? Is, it, is there some sort of exaggeration here? Are frogs and gnats and flies and locusts, are all these things appearing everywhere as the text is telling us? This is actually happening. And if you can get past the supernatural, if you can say, you know what, this is actually happening, there, there also uh, are other issues. Uh, we can ask the question, why does God carry out His judgment to this extent? Right? I mean, it's clear that God uh, could have decimated the Egyptians with just one plague on one evening. But why did God prolong His judgment? Why did He take nine plagues and then the final plague uh, to, to put an end to Egypt? You know, this is all the more prob prob problematic when we read the text and it tells us that it was God who was hardening Pharaoh's heart. So, for example, as we read uh, at the ninth plague, after darkness covers the land, um, you know, Pharaoh's like, go, go, go. But then it tells us that the Lord hardened his heart. Uh, and so, after this hardening that he faces because of the Lord, he decides, you know what? I'm not going to let them go and he prolongs his own judgment. You know, it's as if God, he is making his enemy more persistent, more resilient, only to hurt him even more. You know, like a boxer who knows, he, who, who, who knows that he can put his opponent down at any time, but all he does is dance around the ring with just light jabs, and his opponent, he's woozy, he's going to fall, but he prolongs the fight only to take it to the last round to deliver that devastating blow. And so while this story uh, might be exciting for some, uh, nostalgic for others who grew up with the Bible, there's still a lot left to be explored. And so even though this passage of the, the ten plagues, or the first nine plagues, even though it's a familiar one, you know, with all these questions in mind, I just want to pull back just a little. I want to take a step back, 
pull back the curtains and really try to understand what God is doing with these plagues. And I, and I summed it up in, in, in three actions, okay? And this is what I believe God is doing. He is first revealing, He is rescuing, and He is renewing. So first, God is revealing. He's revealing Himself. Uh, at this point in the Bible, uh, here in Exodus, the Israelites, uh, they don't really know who God is. They know that He is the God of their forefathers, but outside of that, they really don't know much about Him. If you recall back in Exodus 3, this is what Moses says when God says, hey, Moses, I want you to go to my people and tell them that I've appeared to you and that I'm going to set you free. Uh, this is what Moses asks. When they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? In other words, Moses is going to uh, God's own people, and he's expecting that they're going to ask him, hey, what is the name of our God? They don't know who God is. And when Moses appears before Pharaoh, when he goes to Pharaoh, and he says, hey, let the people go. This is what Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is he that I should obey him? Who is he that I should let the Israelites go? I don't know the Lord. I don't know who this God is. You know, at this point in history, Yahweh, or God, the God of the Bible, is just a small, obscure household God from the past. If he's an artist, he's an underground one. If he's a writer, he does freelance work and probably a lot of ghostwriting. No one really knows who this guy is. That is, until now. The story of the ten plagues is God publicly coming out and revealing himself to everyone. Uh, yesterday was uh, quite a special day, um, personally for me, because uh, there's this uh, artist and actor uh, named uh, Nora Lum. Uh, she goes by the name Aquafina. Some of you might know her. But Aquafina is this uh, New York um, you know, artist, uh, performer, she's an actor, and you know, she's rather obscure. Most people don't know her. She played small roles, and most recently she played a minor role uh, in the movie Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, but yesterday, she had the chance to host Saturday Night Live. And I don't know, for me, that was such a huge thing because I grew up watching Saturday Night Live. You know, I, I adored the cast. I loved it, you know, and, and I thought, wow. You know, Nora Lum, Aquafina is just this obscure, you know, this, this small, um, you know, person, this artist, aspiring artist. But here she is finally coming out now. It was her coming out party. You know, I, I DVR'd it. I didn't get a chance to watch it. But I was so anxious. I was thinking, man, how is she going to be received? It was her publicly coming out. People were going to know her. And I was thinking, how is she going to perform? And what is the world going to think of her now that she is this public figure? You know, God at this point... He's this unknown household God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But no one really knows who he is. 
That is until now. This is God coming out and saying, this is who I am. And with the plagues, this is what God is saying. He's saying this to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to everyone. He's saying this. You may think that I am just this household God who called Abraham. You may think that I'm just some weak God who wrestled Jacob into the night to a draw. Or you may think that I'm just the God of the Hebrew slaves. But with these 10 plagues, he's saying, I am actually the God of this entire universe. God with the 10 plagues, he is bringing now the fight to Pharaoh on his turf. He's saying, okay, I will show up on your field, and I will show you that this too is mine. Your kingdom, your empire, your rivers, all of your livestock and your herds, they all belong to me. Even the weather, the weather listens to the voice of God, and it obeys See, with the ten plagues, God is showing, he is revealing that he is not just a tribal God with limited power, but that he is the creator God. And everything, everything falls under his lordship. You know, people have, even now, have a tendency to view God in this way. Uh, They assign him to certain territories or to certain areas right? Uh, they, they, they restrict uh, God. They, they view him in a very narrow, compartment, compartmentalized way. We say things like, yeah, God is just the God of one political party, or God is uh, just the God of one social class, or God is just the God of one ethnic group. God is just the God of one certain type of people. The God of the Bible is just restricted to a certain geographic area. And we do that with respect to our own personal lives. We assign him to a certain territory, a certain area in our lives, a certain area where God can only be God in that area. You know, we think to ourselves, well, God, he's the God of our weekends, but not the God of our weekdays. He's the God of my beliefs, but not the God of my morals. He's the God of my faith, but not the God of my practice. He's the God of my family but not the God of my finances. He's the God who can help, but never the one who can command. He's the God who saves, but he's not my Lord. You see, and in in these 10 plagues, what God is doing is he's revealing who he is. He's showing to Pharaoh, to the Israelites, to the world, and for generations to come, he's saying, I am the creator. And everything... Everything is mine. Your territory, your kingdom, your empire, everything falls under my lordship. You think I'm a visitor because I'm coming to Egypt? He's saying, no, this too is mine. You know, some of you might have experienced something like this when you first encountered God. You thought to yourself, okay, who is this God? Who is this Christian God? Who is the God of the Bible? 
Who is the God of the Bible Belt or the God of the Americas? Who is the God of the suburbs? Who is the God of the naive, those who trust and believe? You know, I thought, who is the God of the Korean churches with these fleets of vans? Who is this God? And I'm sure, like myself, many of you have underestimated him. But when he reveals himself, when he shows himself to you, to me, he does so not just as the God of your parents or the God of this country, but he reveals himself as the king over everything. And when he does that, we feel helpless, but we feel completely overwhelmed. And the only proper response is, thy will be done. You know, for those of you who have yet to receive him or believe in him, you know, let me just simply say, you know, he is still Lord over you. Next, what, what we find God doing is uh, we find that God is uh, rescuing. You know, many have wondered uh, when we come to this story of the ten plagues, we're wondering, where did God come up with these plagues? Where did he get these ideas from? I mean, is God consulting children here, right? As if God is like, you know, this, this school teacher and he sits children, you know, around him and he, and he says, and he's asking the children, hey, what should I do to my enemies? And the children's like, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. And they're like, make frogs, you know? Oh, make, make flies, right? And, 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 and there's this one person who says, you know what? Let's have a great time. Let's turn off the lights. Let's, that's a great, great idea. You know, we're wondering, like, where is God getting these ideas from? And, you know, God, he's not playing a practical joke with these plagues. Rather, what we believe is that God, he is rescuing his people from false worship. He is rescuing his people from idolatry. You see, many have noted that uh, the plagues that we find here in Exodus correspond uh, rather loosely with the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. So, for example, uh, the Nile. The Nile had a number of uh, different gods that were called to oversee it. Uh, Apis, Isis, Kanum, uh, or the god of the frogs, the frog goddess, whose name was Heket. And the god of the desert, the dust. There was a god who was called Set. And as we go through these plagues one by one, it seems that all of these 10 plagues are in response, are in response to the worship of false gods. They're in response to the worship of the Egyptian gods. And so as we get into the mind of God, it seems that what God is doing here is one plague at a time. God is calling out these supposed gods that the people worshiped casually and relied on frequently. And he's calling them into the arena. He's saying, hey, you, come forward. Let us, let's see what you can do. And God, one by one, he is crushing them one at a time. One idol at a time. God is releasing Israel. He is rescuing them. See, God didn't prolong this deliverance because he was cruel, but he prolonged this deliverance because he wanted to make sure that the people understood that there was no other God besides him. 
you know, there, um, there was a phase um, in, my, uh, in my oldest son's life, uh, Caleb. There was a certain phase in his life where uh, he became obsessed with these things called Pokemon cards. Uh, he loved it. He loved it so much, and it was his possession. He carried it around uh, wherever he went. But I realized that what started to happen was, even though it was his possession, after a while, I started to realize that it was starting to possess him. I noticed a couple of things. Uh, my first son, Caleb, he's not much of a talker. He's quite shy. But he would carry around these cards wherever he went. And that would sort of be his conversation starter. That was the way he started to talk to people. And soon I realized that he relied on it so much that he couldn't go anywhere without it. Now I know, I know I'm psychoanalyzing a five-year-old at that time, he was five. But I started to know that, man, this guy is starting to rely on it. He had some cool shiny cards. And whenever he would carry around his cool shiny cards and people would say, wow, those are some really nice cool cards, it would boost his self-esteem. And he would start to find his self-worth from it. And I'm not over-spiritualizing here. He was doing exactly that. He was finding his worth in these cards. And I know this because on one particular occasion, he lied to me. When I told him, hey, don't bring your cards to school, he snuck it into his backpack, and he got caught. At this, I knew that those cards were his idol. And I thought to myself, I need to crush this. <laughs> so I took the cards away, and I was thinking, what should I do? What should I do with these idols in his life? And I imagined you know, calling him to my study, sitting him down and saying, you see this? And one by one, I imagined myself just tearing up each card. You like this shiny card? <laughs> you know? And, and I thought, you know, if you are going to lie to me and now you are trusting in this, see this? I'm going to tear this up and crush it, just like God in Exodus. And, you know, I could imagine at that point, as I was imagining this, I could imagine the devastation that he was going to face. I can imagine, you know, and, and almost picture the tears that was going to come down his face because it was going to hurt him so much. But I also knew he needs this. He needs this. You know, it was that moment when I was fantasizing <laughs> that I remembered. I remembered my own idols, particularly my idol for control. <laughs> right? I never imagined a world where my kids would lie to me. Okay, oh, how naive I am, you know, as a parent. But I thought, oh, like, I can't control my own kids. And I started to remember my own idols. And I thought about, like, how much, and I thought about how much it was going to hurt when God took away my own idols one by one. As he would take these idols away and as he would crush it, you know, it's like a wall that, that falls down and you feel completely vulnerable when your idols are gone. But I knew how much I needed God to rescue me from it. 
You know, I'm not sure if you've ever experienced the devastating yet liberating moment when God <laughs> takes your idols and He crushes it. If you haven't, I'm sure you will. And if you feel particularly bold today, if you feel the Spirit moving in you, I encourage you to ask God this morning to take that thing that you rely on, to take that thing which you find yourself worth in, and ask God, God, crush this. Turn it to ashes. Take this in your arena and blow it to shreds. And make me trust in you. Make me know that there is no other God besides you. You know, Tim Keller has a great book. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor, uh, or former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, he has this great book called Counterfeit Gods. And uh, he talks a lot about the, the idols that we wrestle with. And there's this one section where he talks about the deep idols that we have. And he lists them out. Now, um, for those of you who say, you know what, I've read this book. I've never seen this before. Uh, it, it, it's because this is found in the footnotes. You have to read the footnotes to get to this. But Tim Keller, he says, listen, if you want to understand what your deep idols are, you need to you know, answer these questions. He says this, if you say that life only has meaning or life only has worth if, and he mentions you know, the first, he says this, Life only has meaning if I am loved and respected by blank. If that's you, he's saying you have an approval idol. He says, if you say that life only has meaning if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life, then you have a comfort idol. If you say, life only has meaning if I'm able to get mastery over my own life in the area of blank, for me, it was in the area of my children. Then you have a control idol. If you say, I only have worth if I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone, then you have a independence idol. Other people who say, you know what, life only has meaning if I'm highly productive and I get work done. Then you have a work idol. If you say life only has meaning if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions, then you have a material idol. If you say life only has meaning when my family and my children are happy, my parents are happy and they are happy with me, then you have a family idol. If you say life only has meaning when Mr. and Mrs. Wright is in love with me, then that is a relationship idol. If you say, life only has meaning when I have a particular kind of look or body image, then you suffer from an image idol. Keller, he lists these things out, probably I think maybe 20 in total, but I've just selected a few. But he, he lists these things out so that we can wrestle with the idols in our hearts. You see, when God rescues Israel here in Exodus, he wants to take all of their idols, crush it before their very eyes so that when they leave, they will know that there is no other God but Yahweh. You know, if you read the entire passage, it's actually uh, pretty interesting. There's a little bit of progression because uh, Pharaoh and Moses, they go back and forth. Pharaoh first, he says, you know what? 
I'll let you go. Just take the men with you. But Moses says, no, we need to take the women and the children. And then at a later point, Pharaoh says, you know what? Take the women and children, but leave the livestock. Moses says, no, we need to take everything. We need to take our entire livestock. And, you know, there's this back and forth until Pharaoh finally relents. But, you know, we find here in this, this back and forth that what God wants is he wants, he wants Israel to take everything. He wants them to take everyone with them. God's plan for redemption is leave no one behind. But at the same time, he wants them to leave all of their idols behind. Take everything you own. Take your family. Take your possessions. Take it all because all these things are now supposed to be in service and in worship to God. But all the idols, all the false worship that you have done, leave those things in Egypt. So God is revealing himself. He is rescuing his people. And finally, he is renewing. And I'll be very uh, short on this. Uh, if you read this, this story, um, Exodus 7 to 9, uh, carefully, you'll notice that this story of the plagues um, echoes a lot of the themes uh, and the patterns that we find in Genesis 1, the creation story. I have this chart in front of us so that we can take a look. But uh, just, just very simply, uh, if you compare Genesis 1 and 2 with Exodus 7 to 10, you'll notice that there are a lot of similarities. Uh, first, you know, Genesis 1, when God creates uh, the, the, the fish of the sea and, and the birds of the air, he says, hey, l let these creatures swarm uh, in the waters. And we find the same thing in Exodus 8. The, the frogs that come up, they, they start to swarm in the Nile, and they come up into the house, the bedroom, to everywhere. Uh, we find the same thing with uh, the, when God creates in Genesis 2. He creates man with the dust of the earth. And we find Moses, he strikes uh, with his staff the dust of the earth, and this dust that actually became life now become gnats, and it fills the land of Egypt. Or when God, he says this um, in Genesis 1.11, he says, let the earth sprout vegetation and all these plants, let them all come up. In Exodus 9, we find that hail comes and it destroys everything. It destroys all the plants. Or the locusts. Or Genesis 2.9, when God says, out of the ground, uh, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. In Exodus, during the plagues, we find that locust comes and they ate and they eat all the plants in the land, all the fruit of the trees, that not a single green remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. And finally, as you might have anticipated, Genesis 1 starts with God saying, let there be light, and he creates light and he separates light from darkness. And in Exodus, we find with the final plague, or the ninth plague of darkness, God, he brings darkness over the land, such darkness that it was felt, and he separates the darkness from the light where the Israelites are in light and the Egyptians are in darkness. What does all this mean? Here we find with the plagues that God, he is unleashing his creative powers, and he's unleashing his creative powers by actually unwinding creation. You see, in creation, everything was good. There was order. There was structure behind it. But now, as he brings judgment upon his people, his order or his judgment now turns all of that order into chaos. You see, there's a reversal of sort here with the ten plagues. Just as in Genesis 
the creation account, there was this crescendo all the way up to man. Here now in Exodus, we find that it's actually going backwards, that God is undoing everything that He has created. He is bringing back all the order that He has created, and He's turning it into utter chaos where there is complete darkness. And friends, if we understand what God is doing here as He's unleashing His creative powers, as He's unwinding creation, it becomes clear to us, the readers, that what God is doing is He's doing this not just for judgment, but He's doing this for salvation. You see, throughout the Bible, do you know how God saves His people? Do you know how God saves His people? It's through decreation to recreation. God saves His people always by undoing creation and then recreating it. That's what He did with Noah. If you remember Noah and the flood, what does God do? The waters at creation come back up, and then God, He decreates it, and then He separates it again, and He recreates. He unwinds creation, and then He recreates. That's what He's doing here with the plagues. He is unwinding creation. He is decreating it only to recreate it again by causing the Israelites to pass through the waters in the Red Sea. That's what he does in the exile when he destroys the temple and Jerusalem only to build it back up again. And climactically, that's what we find in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When the creator of the world comes and he unwinds all of creation and all the effects of sin and death at the cross, he unravels all of creation. And if you remember when Jesus is hanging there on the cross, what is going on? The sun darkens. There's earthquakes everywhere. It is utter chaos because Jesus at the cross, he is decreating everything. And in his resurrection, in his new life, he is recreated, becoming the first fruits from among the dead. That is why for the Christian, when God enters into our life. When we become a Christian, it is nothing short of death and resurrection. That is how we become recreated. We die to our former selves. We die with respect to sin. We die with Christ on the cross, and we rise again to a new life now in Jesus. Anything short of recreation is not salvation. You can have revival, you can have renewal, you can have reform, but unless it's actually decreation to recreation, unless it's actually death to life in Jesus, it is not salvation. And if I can simply put it this way, you know, sometimes we view creation and salvation as two separate events, but the Bible tells us it's actually the same thing. It's creation and recreation. And if you go to the end of the Bible, this theme continues throughout. Because when you get to the last book of the Bible in Revelation, it's the same theme that happens at the end of, of the world. In Revelation, we read before and during Jesus' return, what's going to happen? There's going to be decreation. There's going to be utter chaos. The chaos that God unleashes is reminiscent of the ten plagues here in Exodus where there's locusts, there's hail, there's all sorts of natural disasters, there's darkness. And in, in Revelation, we find that there's this unraveling of creation, this unwinding of creation that will then give way to God recreating the world, the new heavens and the new earth, recreating you and I, both in body and 
Spirit. That is what God is doing here in Exodus. He is saving his people by decreating and then recreating. And if we can just meditate upon that for just a moment, I just want to encourage us that I think this idea of decreation to recreation, this idea of God bringing chaos in our lives so that he can restore order actually gives us hope for the things that are to come. You know, Scripture tells us that whatever chaos that we have experienced in our life, whatever decreation that we have gone through, maybe in your life or in the life of someone you know, the hope is recreation. The hope is God making everything new again. You know, the Bible uses a particular word to describe this. The Bible uses the word glory, glory. And glory doesn't mean perfect. Glory doesn't mean untarnished. Glory doesn't mean unblemished. But when the Bible uses the word glory to speak of the new heavens and the new earth, that word glory, there's actually a, this connotation of, of a past, of a history. When the word glory is used, yeah, it, it speaks of something that in the past was dark, was sinful was fallen. But when all that messiness and all that chaos has been restored, redeemed, recreated, the Bible says, that is glory. You know, people use the word glory to describe uh, an exciting and exhilarating game. When, when there's a football game, and not when it's a blowout, but when there's this back and forth, back and forth, and one team is so down, you don't think they can come back, but then they do come back. And when you see that experience, that, what do you say? You say that game was glorious. When you take an old car and you fix it all up, you clean it all up, you change the seats, you, you change all the mechanics, and you fix it, you say, I've restored this car to glory. The African slaves in the, in the United States, when they looked forward to emancipation, when they looked forward to liberation, though in the present they were, they were facing all sorts of chaos, they looked forward to that and they called that glory. Glory. That is what the Bible speaks of for you and I and the future that awaits us. You know what's going to be glorious? In the new heavens and new earth, when you and I get a chance to actually walk down the streets, streets of neighborhoods that were broken, streets of neighborhood that were poverty-stricken, and we see the presence of God there, we will say, that is glory. Amen. When we see the refugee camps, the barren lands where millions and millions of people were camped out, in Rwanda, in Bangladesh, in Turkey, when we see those camps flowing with life and green and the presence of God there, we will say that is glory. When everything that we have experienced here on this earth, the decreation and the chaos, when all of those things are recreated, we will say that is glory. Just as we look upon Christ crucified, when we look upon Jesus, the Son of God, crucified, hanging upon that tree, we say, that is glory. 
we find God here recreating, recreating so that he can save his people. Join me in prayer at this time.